migrants and immigration are such current topics on our news at the moment that when you have personal involvement, it sort of heightens your awareness. Liz and I were in New York last autumn and so we took a boat trip into the harbour and we went to uh, um, Liberty Island and we saw the Statue of Liberty, which is absolutely amazing. And then went on to Ellis Island. And Ellis Island was, where, was the gateway to about 12 million immigrants in the 60 years leading up to the mid-1950s. And it was amazing just to be there and experience that. But perhaps even more personal, our son-in-law, Sam, who some of you know, is currently in Ghana applying for a visa to return to the UK to come back and live with his wife, Claire, our daughter, and their two children who are currently in Hastings. And so this whole thing about migrants and immigration is so much more personal. And you know, if you want to become a citizen of the UK, you have to read and be tested on this book, Life in the United Kingdom. And on the official government website, it says, this essential handbook covers the range of topics you need to pass your test and apply for UK citizenship or permanent residency. And it includes the process of becoming a citizen, values and principles, traditions and culture, events and people that have shaped the UK's history, government and the law, getting involved in your community. And as we continue in our series on Matthew's Gospel and look at chapters 5 through 9, I thought I'd steal the title uh, and adapt it slightly. So we're going to look at Life in God's Kingdom, a guide for residents. So if you have your Bible with you, please turn to that section of Matthew. We'll be flicking through those five chapters, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. So have that there, uh, as it were, grasped between your, I was going to say grubby little fingers, but uh, no, that's not. So chapters five to seven are the Sermon on the Mount, often called Jesus' manifesto of this new kingdom. But actually, it's so much more than that. It's like Jesus' prophetic autobiography. It's his action plan. It's the story of the life he's about to live out in public. This, these few pages, this is Jesus. So when we talk about discipleship, we're talking about the pursuit of being like Jesus. And here it is in these chapters. We're going to look at these chapters under three headings. What's this kingdom like? What are the people like? And how do they live? So first, what's this kingdom like? If we look through chapters 8 and 9, so that's the sort of tail end of those five chapters, and it's immediately what followed Jesus' teaching. We find demonstrations of miracles, but more important, demonstrations of authority. In chapter 9 and verse 2, a paralyzed man is brought to Jesus and this is more than likely the same story we read about in Luke 5, where the man's friends brought this man, this 
paralyzed man to Jesus and the crowds prevented them getting into the house. So they climb up on the outside and they dig an enormous hole and they let this man down through the roof to where Jesus is. And Jesus responds, it says, to the faith of the friends and then pronounces the man's sins forgiven. Now there's a whole sermon right there in those two things. Why did he respond to the faith of the friends? And why, when this man was clearly in need because he was paralyzed, did he forgive his sins? I'm not going to go there. But what it results in is thoughts of blasphemy in the minds of the scribes who who were there. And in Matthew 9, verses 4 to 8, we read this. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and he went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck not surprised, and glorify God who had given such authority to men. Isn't that interesting? The crowds didn't say, we glorify God who has given such authority to this man, to Jesus. He says, no, no, no. You've given us such authority to men. So this kingdom comes with authority. For the forgiveness of sins, which is the very thing that separates us from God. But not only that, it has authority over the effects of sin. In this instance, paralysis. And somehow that authority is passed to individual citizens. Jesus goes on to demonstrate this authority in a variety of miracles from major A dumb man speaks. Two blind men see. And a man with leprosy is cleansed. Through the unseen, a lady who has had a hemorrhage for 12 years, right through to the relatively minor, Peter's mother-in-law healed of a fever. Can you imagine what it would be like if that happened in Oxford? Imagine the headlines in the local paper. Dumb man speaks. Blind men see. A person with skin cancer completely healed. I don't know how they treat the lady who'd had a hemorrhage for 12 years. I'm not sure Peter's mother-in-law would get any lineage space at all. But she's going, hey, but I had this really bad cold and it's gone completely. There is nothing that sits outside of the control of God's kingdom. Even death. So the daughter of the synagogue's official had died. And he came to Jesus. And yet, with a touch of Jesus' hand, she comes back to life again. And then there's no limit 
to the reach of this kingdom. Jesus didn't even have to go to the centurion's house to heal his servant. He just said, let it be as you have believed. And she's healed. And as if that weren't enough, Jesus also demonstrates that this kingdom has authority over the natural, physical world. He calms a storm. And then over the spiritual world by casting out demons. In the space of two chapters, we see the remarkable extent of the power and authority of this kingdom. It's not surprising that people were filled with awe and glorified God. They had never seen anything like it. And then, mixed amongst these miracles, are three encounters that reflect on Jesus' earlier teaching, 5 to 7, Sermon on the Mount, that we'll come to in a minute. And they each seem to issue from Jesus saying, follow me. It doesn't actually say that, but the way that these things are written, it gives the impression that Jesus has somehow said, follow me. Whether it's with the crowd and as part of his teaching, he says, follow me, or whether he said to individuals, certainly one of them is that, that he says, follow me. But the, the way that we read it, it's as if that's what he's saying. And in Matthew 8, 19 to 22, it says, Then a scribe came to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. It's interesting that the first is a scribe who is already a teacher, but he commits to follow Jesus wherever he goes. Another wants to wait until his family commitments are fulfilled and resolved but it's quite likely that his father was still alive. The third is Matthew. He says nothing at all. He just gets up and follows Jesus. The difference between the first two and Matthew is words and action. Or picking up from Dale and Tim's preaches over the last two weeks, the difference between commitment and surrender. The dictionary definition of commitment is the state or quality of being dedicated to a cause or activity, with synonyms being dedication, devotion, allegiance, loyalty, faithfulness, fidelity, adherence, attentiveness, responsibility, obligation, duty. Well, you'd, you'd want to have somebody with those sort of qualities alongside you, wouldn't you? They sound good. They sound solid. They sound reliable. Until you compare it with surrender. And the definition of surrender is stop resisting to an enemy or opponent and submit 
to their authority. With synonyms, capitulate, give in, give oneself up, yield, conceal, submit, climb down, give way, defer, acquiesce, back down, cave in, relent, succumb, relinquish, renounce, forego, forswear, cede, abdicate. Then, commitment sounds more like a response to a personal assessment. I've had a look at what you're offering, and I think it looks pretty good. It seems like a good deal. I think I'll commit to it. The scribe hears Jesus' teaching and thinks, this is good. This this sounds better than my... I, I think this is good. I'll commit to it. Yes, I'll follow you. But it's my choice. I'll give myself to it wholeheartedly, but on my terms. You can count on me. We've already seen that Jesus was able to discern what was going on under the surface. And his answer hits the mark. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And it's as if he just hits the point. Are you really committed to me? But surrender says, you win. I can't compete. I am utterly defeated and recognize your absolute and total victory. One says, I've got something to offer and I'll contribute to your kingdom. The other says, I have nothing to offer and I don't even deserve to be part of your kingdom. Matthew 9, 9 says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth and he said to him, follow me. That's what he said, nothing. He got up and followed him. So we've seen this is a kingdom in which the king has complete authority. That some of that authority is available to the citizens of the kingdom. But true citizenship requires surrender, not just commitment. So what are the people like? Let's read the opening verses of chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great, 
For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's not necessarily how we would define happiness, is it? Happiness comes in a different guise. It's not that happiness is wrong, nor that it shouldn't be pursued, but in this kingdom, it's found in different places. People often think of Christians as being sad and unhappy because they have to live to a list of rules that tell them what they can't do. I remember years ago reading a book by John and, Cheryl, John and Elizabeth Sherrill about the story of Demos Shikarian, who was the founder of the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship International. Nice, pithy title. <laughs> but the book was called The Happiest People on Earth. So what is it that brings happiness in this kingdom? I said earlier that this is Jesus' prophetic autobiography. And that will help us as we look at what he meant. So firstly, poor in spirit or spiritually poor. Not necessarily something you would pin on Jesus. But he was fully man as well as fully God. And I think often we fudge the fully man bit. We have this picture of Jesus being perfect and walking the earth, giving pronouncements here, healing people there, challenging the scribes and the Pharisees over there, and floating sort of two feet above the ground, totally unaffected by the world in which we live. But he was just like us. He got hungry, and so he ate food. He got thirsty, and he had something to drink. He got tired, so he slept. He was affected by the crowd pressing in on him. So he went to a quiet place and was alone. He needed time with his father, so he prayed. And when he was tempted, he overcame by using the power of the word and the spirit. In Luke 4, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. Citizens of God's kingdom recognize their need of his power, his Spirit. I've heard people say that if Jesus needed the Holy Spirit to overcome temptation, then how much more do we? But the problem with that is, it sets Jesus at a level so far above us that we think it's unattainable and we give up. If he was perfect and he needed the Holy Spirit, then what hope do I have? Whereas actually, he was demonstrating that the way to live the perfect life 
was in reliance on the Holy Spirit, which is a different way of looking at it. Citizens of God's kingdom hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, there are lots of TV shows on at the moment about food. And you hear people say, I'm passionate, passionate about food. You know, these presenters, oh, it's my passion. Food is my thing. This, this is not about passion, but about desperation. We're back to commitment and surrender again. Passion is my choice. I think righteousness, is a, it's got a lot going for it, hasn't it? It's a good thing. I think I'll give it a go. Has anyone here actually been hungry or thirsty? And I mean, right now, I'm not just talking about missing the odd meal and feeling a little rumble, or oh, I think I'm a bit hungry. No, I mean really hungry or really thirsty. Some years ago, I fasted for three days totally of food and water. <laughs> I've done it since. And I remember on day three craving water when I cleaned my teeth it was like bliss having that water in my mouth and the temptation to swallow was amazing but it was just incredible when we come before the father we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ he sees us as righteous it's what Jesus has done for us. But here on earth, we have to pursue righteousness. And we have to pursue it in such a way as if it were food that would save us from starvation. The citizens of this kingdom are also gentle and merciful and pure. They're peacemakers. So they put themselves in the center of conflict and unsurprisingly they will face persecution and threat. But they also have value. They bring flavor and help to preserve as salt does. They are lights bringing clarity about this kingdom by their good works. So let's look at how they live. <clears throat> Many people have looked at the Sermon on the Mount as great moral teaching or an excellent code to live by. Harry S. Truman, president of the USA, said this, a person who is fundamentally honest doesn't need a code of ethics. The Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount are all the ethical code anybody needs. It sounds good, doesn't it? But it's a bit like living in England and only speaking German. It doesn't work. Why? Because you're in the wrong kingdom. C.S. Lewis dealt with it brilliantly in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. 
That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet as Lord and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. It's no good trying to live as if you're in God's kingdom unless you're in God's kingdom. It doesn't work. So what did Jesus come to teach? The law and the prophets were already well established. Was going, Jesus going to set them aside and introduce a new way of living? No. He says he's come to fulfill. And that means actually live according to those laws. But then he goes on to develop, even surpass those laws, with a bit of compare and contrast. He says, the law says don't murder. I say... Don't be angry. Don't call your brother good for nothing. Oh, whoops, I think I've fallen for that one. (laughs) Or even don't call your brother a fool. It's interesting, isn't it? Good for nothing and murder. They feel like poles apart. But actually, if you say honestly about somebody, you are good for nothing then murder actually isn't a very big step away. He said, the law says, don't commit adultery. I say, don't even think about it. Wow. And then he says, if you're coming to bring an offering and you've got something against your brother, what do you do? Leave the offering. (laughs) Go and get sorted out with your brother because your relationship with the father is affected if you don't have harmony with your brothers. And this continues with different comparisons and different examples until Jesus sums it up in one phrase in Matthew 5, 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Essentially, to be like Jesus, who was perfect. He came as a man, a human being, just like one of us. And he showed that it is possible to be perfect. Now, the one difference between Jesus and us is that he was not born in sin. He was not subject to original sin, whereas we were. And consequently, we were predisposed to disobey God rather than to obey him. We were outside of his kingdom. And I expect those people who heard Jesus deliver 
the Sermon on the Mount. Can you imagine what it would have been like for them? Hearing that for the first time. We've probably read it, you know, a hundred times. But imagine hearing that for the first time. How is this even possible? But Jesus, by living a perfect life, and then sacrificing himself to pay the punishment that we deserved, made a way so that we could become citizens of God's kingdom. And not only that, but live the way that he did. This is not climbing the ladder to sinless perfection. This is surrendering to God every moment of every day, acknowledging temptation and drawing on the resources of his spirit to seek the way of escape that is available to us, taking every thought captive and relying on the power and the authority provided to us to overcome the enemy in every battle. It's not easy, but it is possible. Ashley's going to come up and share a testimony, and as she does so, I want you to know that the things that she's going to be sharing about, she has talked through over the last several months with Dale and Tim. This doesn't come as a big surprise. They've worked with her, uh, and you need to know that as you hear what she has to say. Can I take the thingy out? Yeah, you can take the thingy out of the thingy. Yeah. I'm not sure I can, but you might be able to. No, I've just made it worse. It goes that way. Oh, look, there we go. Okay. Hello. I'm freaking out. I warn you now. Uh, okay. Whew, it's a lot easier to talk to my kids on a Friday night. You're all nicer. All right. So, um, as Kevin's been saying, there is, well, there's a cost to discipleship. There's a cost to surrender. Um, Jesus acknowledges that. He tells us to count the cost before we follow him. Um, so I just want to share with you some of my testimony and some of where I'm coming from and some of the things that God has taught me as well around this in the hope that it will help some of you. So, I am bisexual. In case you don't know, that means I'm attracted both to guys and girls. So I was around 16, 17 years old when I decided I wanted to follow Jesus. I realized I wanted him to be the center of my life. Um, but at the same time, I was in a relationship with a girl, and I knew from the outset that it was one or the other. I knew that I couldn't follow Jesus and be in a gay relationship. Like, I knew what the Bible said about that. Um, it's just, there are no gray areas. It's just, it's blunt, which is actually really helpful, like, People try and twist what the Bible says and make it okay to be in same-sex relationships, and I honestly don't know how they do it. Like, if you just look at what it says specifically about this, and you look at the general story that it tells, and you look at the model that God has set out for sex and for marriage, it's just so clear and it's so blunt, and there are no gray areas. Um, and I knew that. And it took me a few years of wrestling with this and of the relationship that I was in breaking down for other reasons just to come to a place where... I was willing to submit this to Jesus and I was willing to surrender to him on it. Um, so I just want to tell you a couple of things that God has taught me through that. Um, 
and that he's continuing to teach me now because obviously this is something I still struggle with. They didn't like flip a switch and make me straight. Um, so <laughs> the first thing, the first thing that God has taught me is that Jesus is better. Um, I couldn't find the words to do this justice, honestly. I, Jesus is, he's better. This is, this is the reason I follow him, honestly. This is why I can surrender to him, because life with him is better than life with anybody else, because being loved by him is better than being loved by anybody else. He's, Jesus is better. He, oh, he's so good. He's more beautiful, and he's more wise, and he's more kind, and he's more giving, and he's, he's more loving, and he's more gracious, and he's more satisfying, and he gives you more joy, and more peace, and more purpose, and more value, and I could go on forever, but I won't. Jesus is better. Thank you. He's better. He's better than anything you could ever dream of or wish for or hope for and would even know to ask for. And when you fall in love with this guy, it starts to change your perspective on everything else. When you, when you know him and you know what it is to be loved by him and when your identity is in, wow, I'm loved by God, like he created me and he bought me out of the darkness and the mess that I got myself into. He bought me out with his own life and I can, I can speak to God and I am more than his servant, I'm more than his friend, I'm his child, and I get to be with him forever. When you see these things, when you see this truth, it changes the way that you see everything else. And it starts to make the things of this world look a little bit less shiny. Like, if I love him, am I going to want to do anything that would offend him, or that would hurt him, or that would come between us? Like, of course I'm not. I'm going to know and I'm going to trust that he's better than those things, and I'm going to surrender to what he has for me, and trust that it is better than what the world offers. So that's one thing God has taught me, that I can surrender to him because he is better. The other thing is that God is God and I owe him my obedience. So like Dale was saying a couple of weeks ago, and we've been hearing reiterated, Jesus is king and we are rebels who need to surrender. He's God and I do what he says whether I like it or not, whether I understand it or not. His word is final and what he says goes. Right? So what if God tells me to do something that I think is crazy? What if God told me to go live in a tree? Like, I was thinking of something crazy. Um, I kind of, actually, I kind of like that idea. I, <laughs> something about me kind of likes that idea. But <laughs> I know, though, that I do also enjoy things like fridges and plumbing and central heating, so I'll probably be done after a couple of hours. But, um, so, anyway, getting away from the point. What, what if God told me you have to go and live in a tree? He's God, right? I do it, I obey. What if God said to me that I have to eat mushrooms every day for the rest of my life? I hate mushrooms. I, my mother knows, I hate mushrooms. I cannot stand them. I was trying to think of the worst thing that God could ask me to do, and this is what I came up with. Like, oh, they're horrible. They're like slugs. They're just, I'm sorry. Anyway, what if God told me I had to eat mushrooms every day for the rest of my life? Because that's how I follow him. He's God, right? I don't like that, but he's God, and I do what he says. What if God says to me, you cannot be with this person, even if you're in love with them, because that's not my best for you? He's God. I don't like that. But I surrender to him, I submit to him, because I understand the difference between the creator and a created being. And I surrender to him. So before we even get to what the word of God actually says, the question, the challenge, is will you surrender to it? If you disagree with God on an issue, will you surrender to him anyway? And that's kind of the, the challenge that God presented to me, to follow Jesus in saying to the Father, not my will but yours. Um, and I just wanted to share that with you, and I hope that it helps some of you with whatever you're dealing with.
Following Jesus can be a challenge. Our own testimony that come uh, October this year, Liz and I will have been married 40 years. And in that time, we lived in 11 different homes. We've moved quite a lot. But each time we've done so in response to what God has directed. Just as in Luke 4, it said, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. We have felt God leading us time after time, place after place. And we have found, just like the disciples did, that when the storm comes, it's better to be in the same boat as Jesus, in the right place, at the right time. That's not a joke, that is reality. So life in God's kingdom, a guide for residents. This is a kingdom in which the king has complete authority. That some of that authority is available to the citizens of the kingdom. But true citizenship requires surrender, not just commitment. Those citizens acknowledge they are totally reliant on the Holy Spirit. They pursue righteousness and seek to be gentle, pure peacemakers, allowing their good works to shine out as demonstrations of this kingdom. Their ultimate aim is to be like Jesus. And they declare, it's not easy, but it is possible.